And we will continue looking at uh, our series in First and Second Kings, looking at Elijah and Elisha. Now today we're looking uh, at Elisha and kind of a, a strange relationship here. Elisha is interacting with the enemies of Israel, those who have committed great evils against the nation and are now coming before him. Now, this is kind of a difficult passage because it has uh, some major themes in it that are some of the most difficult in Scripture. God's relationship to evil. God's sovereignty over all things. His use of suffering and evil to bring about good, while at the same time not saying that it's good and not excusing it. How does God hold all of these things together, and how do they express themselves in a way that is true to God's character and his nature and fulfilled in the cross of Jesus Christ? These are some of the, the concepts that we're going to be wrestling with today, and yes, yeah, so we need a lot of grace, but uh, we're going to talk about three things particularly. Uh, God's sovereignty over evil and how that leads to repentance. God's sovereignty over evil and how he has sorrow even in the midst of it. Then he has his sorrow even over the evil that he's sovereign over. And finally, how God can be sovereign over evil and still bring true justice for human, humans who are responsible for committing those things. All right, this is a time for nuance. This is a time for carefulness. And uh, to understand the nature of God without slipping off the edge on either side, that we might see that Jesus encompasses all of these characteristics in a beautiful way that is deserving of all praise. So with that, let's, let's pray that we might see these things rightly. Father, we've already sung that you never let go, that you are with us in the trial and in the storm that all things are under your hand. And Father, we ask that we might understand and interpret uh, evil as you call us to in a way that is faithful, in a way that is true to what you have revealed, not going beyond it, but also not denying the things that you have said. Father, would you help us to, to live in the midst of suffering, to experience uh, evil in a way that would lead us to Christ, would lead us to be dependent upon you, would lead us to, to seek out the God who is compassionate and who is a Savior in Jesus Christ. So, Father, would you be with us, and would you empower us by your Holy Spirit to understand the words that he has inspired? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. All right, so first major concept here. How is God both sovereign over evil and suffering in a way that also is for, for ultimate salvation? And we're going to see this through uh, this interaction between Elisha and the king of Syria's servant, Hazael. 2 Kings 8-7. Now Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. When it was told to him, 
the man of God has come here, the king said to Hazael, Take a present with you and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? All right, this already is a big deal. And if it doesn't seem like a big deal, we have to, we have to wrestle with it a little bit. So uh, this is Ben-Hadad. This is the king of Syria. He has fallen ill, and he seeks out Elisha, the man of God. All right, why do we care? Now, this is, this is incredibly ironic and strange in the context of First and Second Kings because we've already met Ben-Hadad. He is the king of Syria, and we have seen him time and time again attacking Israel, seeking to destroy Israel, and he is an enemy of God, a worshiper of idols, and now where is he? He is seeking out Elisha, the man of God, and we're going to see Elisha actually receives him. Elijah does respond. All right, this is remarkable. This is the opposite of what should be happening. And we're going to start to see, understand why and what that means for the way that God interacts with evil men and women in grace. All right, second irony. This is not the first time we have seen a king who is ill seek out advice upon it with his illness. All right, we have to remember way, way back, the beginning of 2 Kings, who was in this exact same situation Ahaziah. Ahaziah, the king, not of Syria. King of Syria hates God, or should. But King Ahaziah, he was the king of Israel. The nation of this God, Yahweh, who is under all of its promises and all of its blessings. And yet, what did Ahaziah do? Ahaziah, who should be a friend of God, who should be the leader of God's people. What does he do? He goes to Baal, Beelzebub, the Lord of the flies. He goes to idols, and he goes to, to foolishness, to his destruction. And yet here is this Syrian king. He goes to the right place. He goes to the man of God, to Elisha. All right, what is this equal to? All right, this is like the local pastor going to get his tarot card reading, right? And the local devil worshiper coming to church and, and asking for prayer. All right, it's totally switched. And as we, as we look at uh, the relationship of God to evil and to enemies and to people who should be outside and should be judged, it is not cut and dry. That it's not as if God just chooses and, and those who are inherit the faith are deemed as friends and those who inherit evil and sin as if they are cast out. No, in fact, the history of redemption shows exactly the opposite. That those who are willing to, to see themselves as the enemies of God and to admit to themselves that they are under judgment, they're actually the ones that are saved. They're the ones that God seeks in a special way. That Jesus says, I don't come for the healthy, I come for the sick. I come for those who know they are spiritually broken. 
He doesn't just destroy his enemies. He seeks them out and saves them. And Ben-Hadad is one of these examples. Now, what does that show us? That shows us first that if you feel like you are outside, if you feel like you're an enemy of God, if you feel like you've committed great evil and atrocities, all right, the sovereign God is gracious in Christ. And he wants to reconcile you, you to himself. The cross has enabled and opened, it, opened up that path. Right? No one is so far gone. Ben-Hadad is the example. But the other is true as well. There is no promise that just because you know the truth, or just because you've been born into it or have inherited it, that therefore you are safe. That is what we learn from Ahaziah. That you can claim to be a friend and be an enemy by our foolishness and self-righteousness. Remember who Jesus seeks out. He seeks out Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who was hated and despised for his sin. Who does he say loves him the most is this woman filled with sexual immorality, but she washes his feet with her hair and her tears. The prodigal son is received with open arms, and the self-righteous older brother misses all of the grace and love. Now the question is, okay, how did did Ben-Hadad, this foreign king, how did he get to the point where he could be saved? All right, well, we have seen a little bit of his story. Ben-Hadad has been saved through endless and countless defeat and suffering and destruction, again and again and again. And that's where we see, once again, okay, God is sovereign over evil. He he is sovereign over suffering, and he gave suffering to Ben-Hadad that he might be saved. All right, first uh, first way we see this, uh, Ben-Hadad kept uh, planning ambushes against Israel. And he'd, he'd secretly try to kind of catch the Israelite army. But every single time, Elisha would tell, his, tell the armies of Israel exactly where Ben-Hadad was hiding. And so again and again and again, he was defeated. So much so, he's like, As someone is in my bedroom listening to my pillow talk. <laughs> That's the only explanation here. No, no, it's God. This man of God actually has a, a real God, not just an idol behind him. All right, this is the king who sent his soldiers in to try to kill Elisha. But Elisha strikes them blind, leads them into the, into the capital city, Samaria, should kill them all, but then throws them a great feast and sends them away on their safe and blessed and full of grace. All right, can you imagine how belittling that is for this king who seeks to, to destroy the man of God, and yet he is both defeated and shown grace and mercy? This is the same king who, who besieged Samaria. They were surrounding Samaria, and what happens? 
God miraculously sends like this thunderous sound and his whole army runs away scared and is defeated by absolutely nothing. Now, there's two responses here. This God has been sovereignly thwarting Ben-Hadad, ruining his life, destroying his kingdom, defeating his armies. And he could have two responses. He could shake his fist and despise this God. And he could seek to destroy him and overthrow him. Or he could recognize his sovereign power. He could recognize that he is under judgment of a true and powerful God. And he could seek his mercy and grace. And as he seeks out Elisha, the man of God, we see just that. He has turned. He has turned and he is reaching out to the God of grace in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his illness. He comes to know God's judgment and his power unto repentance and salvation. All right. That is one of the ways God uses evil and suffering is to bring his people to repentance, is to find those who are running from him to wake them up and draw them to himself. All right, so we ask ourselves, in the midst of suffering, what do we do? Who do we run to? Do we shake our fists at God and say, you have failed me, and then go running after idols and foolishness and sin? Or do we humble ourselves and recognize, like, all right, no, I see you are powerful. I see you have the power to judge and you have the power to save. Do we seek the one who, who took suffering upon himself on the cross that he might save us, that he might wake us from our rebellion and our foolishness? Who will you turn to? Who are you turning to? What are you doing with your suffering and with evil around you? Are you turning to repentance and to life in Christ? All right, so we have one, one category here. God is sovereign over evil and suffering, but unto salvation and grace. Now we're looking at another big concept here. The relationship because, between God's sovereignty over evil and his ability to actually have sorrow and compassion for his people in the midst of it. All right, so the story's going to turn. It's not about Ben-Hadad anymore. It actually never was. Now it's turning to the servant himself, Hazael. Verse 9. So Hazael went to meet him, Elisha, and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, 40 camels loads. When he came and stood before him, Hazael said, Your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this illness? And Elisha said to him, go say to him, go say to the king of Syria, you shall certainly recover. But the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. All right, this is a weird response. He's saying, okay, I, I actually know that he's going he's to recover. Uh, you should say that he's going to recover. 
but I know he is going to die. The Lord has revealed that to me. All right, what do we do with that? All right, is this one of those examples where God condones a lie? Is he trying to spare uh, the king's feelings so he's not too scared as if as he awaits his doom? Is, is deception or, or lying just not that bad or, or okay in certain contexts? Um, all right. The story will continue. We'll see. Hold on to that. Hold on. I'm not going to solve it for you. All right. You'll get it. It's supposed to be weird at first. All right. So he keeps going on. Verse 11. And Elisha fixed his gaze and, scared, and stared at Hazael until he was embarrassed. All right. Just staring at him. And the man of God wept. And Hazael said, why does my Lord weep? He answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses and you will kill their young men with the sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazael said, what is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? Elijah answered, the Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. All right. So, he gazes into these eyes, and the Lord reveals to Elisha that Hazael will be king and that he will commit great atrocities against the people of Israel. Now, how does... How does Elisha know this? Because the Lord reveals it to him. How does the Lord know this? All right, this is difficult. The Lord knows this, not because the Lord looked into the future. He can do that. Because he willed it. He sovereignly ordained for Hazael to have this role. And before you think, well, I, I prove it, uh, In fact, God actually told Elijah way, way back to anoint Hazael to be king. Years and years and years before. This was part of the plan from the very beginning. And this is just how God works. God is sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over the lilies of the field to clothe them and make them to make them blossom. He feeds the, the cattle on a thousand hills. He makes the, the deer give birth. He makes the sun rise and set. He knows the hairs on your head. He determines the future and holds it in his hand. Ephesians 1.11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is a God who considers all things and within the, his own counsel determines by his own will all things. 
Everything is under his control. Evil included. Suffering included. Terrible things like this included. Now we wonder, okay, why? Why would God will for this to happen? We read this list. This is a horrible list of horrible things. Why would this be the work that he is doing? And it's for the same reason as point one. God uses suffering and evil to bring his people to repentance. 2 Kings 13.3 And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael. That God was, was lifting up this instrument of suffering and judgment against his people in their rebellion. That is, people whom he loves are running from him, and to bring them back, he brings the sword of judgment through this man, this servant, Hazael. All right. The same thing that saves Ben-Hadad, he's going to use to save his people. Suffering and judgment, and even evil that he might bring life and grace and salvation. Now, what does that mean about God for you? All right, we can think that means that God is then cold, uncaring, cruel, calculated. Like, how, how could he use these things And that's where we want to balance this with another reality that seems hard for us to really grasp. That God does all of these things with great sorrow and compassion and, and great feeling towards his people. That in this, he doesn't become this cold, distant God or even this vengeful, just like destructive God Remember, what does Elisha do? Even as he hears these things and sees these about Hazael, what does he do? He weeps. He weeps over what will happen. Knowing better than anyone that this is exactly what Israel needs. That they need judgment. They need to be woken up. They need to be shaken out of their idolatry. And yet he weeps anyway. He weeps over the things that he knows is the plan. He weeps over the thing he knows is for ultimate good. He weeps over the things that, that he knows will be hard for his people. And they shouldn't feel that foreign. They think of parenting. The way that we weep over the judgment that our kids have to endure that we're, we're filled with sorrow, that, like, that they have to endure those punishments even as we are dealing them. We're the ones bringing the punishments, and yet we also feel great sorrow over them that we have to do it. 
All right, that is God on this cosmic scale who loves his people and who to draw them to repentance can weep even as he does it. He cares. He's had passion for his people. He feels the depth of their sorrow and he joins them in it. And before we say, well, no, God didn't do this. It's not God weeping. It's Elisha. Maybe Elisha is just mad at God or horrified that this is what God's plan is. All right, this is normal. And this is consistent because Elisha points forward to Jesus. Good. <laughs> nice and loud, everyone. Well done. All right. <laughs> points forward to Jesus. The God-man, who is God incarnate. And what does that Jesus do? He does the exact same thing. He weeps. He weeps over judgment and evil, even as it is God's will, and even as it's, it's being used for good. We think of him standing outside the tomb of Lazarus. When it's, Jesus wept. Jesus wept even though he knew that Lazarus' death would be used to to show Jesus' power of resurrection and to convince all these people who he is and to, to be this great picture. And Jesus wept anyway. You might think he didn't need to weep, but no, he did need to weep because he is that kind of God. He is compassionate and he loves his people and he hates to see them even for a time experience death and destruction. An even stranger example, Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem. Luke 19, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. If only you had known, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. What is he weeping over? He recognizes that Jerusalem will not receive him they will not receive the peace that Christ offers. Instead, they, they choose to kill him. And instead of being angry, instead of being vengeful, instead of condemning the city, he weeps over it and says, if only, if only you had seen me. And you will be judged for your crucifixion of me, but, but he weeps over that. He weeps over their judgment even as they will crucify him. All right, that is the depth of God's compassion. That is the depth of his caring. He really is with us in our suffering and sorrow, even as he is sovereign over it. All right, can we hold those two things together? How beautiful that we have a God who holds those two things together. All right, some implications of this. First, for you who know about the sovereignty of God, that shouldn't blunt your emotions and make you cold and callous. 
All right, we Presbyterians are known as the frozen chosen. All right, because they already know that God already sovereignly ordained anything, so why feel anything about it? And it's all going to work out for good, so let's just stiffen that upper lip. All right, that is evil and that is unbiblical. That is not what Jesus does. That is not what Elisha does. All right, that's not the counsel you should give. We should weep with those who weep. We should feel evil as evil, even as we know that it is being worked for good. We can weep and know that truth. That is a biblical response. That is a Christ-like response. That is a God-like response. All right? Don't be a terrible counselor who just tells people to not feel anything and, well, God's in control. And No. Weep with them. If you are in suffering, weep. And know that you have a God who weeps with you, who feels with you, who longs to draw close to you in your sorrow and even in your judgment. That is the depth of his feeling. Do you seek out such a God? Do you know him in that? We trust both his power and his compassion. And that is the God of the gospel who would weep with us and enter into our sorrows so much so that he would bear our very judgment. He cares. And in his sovereign power, he sought to, to weep and, and to bear this judgment that was not his for our sake. All right, All right last relationship. God's sovereignty over evil and human responsibility. We often get this wrong. Verse 14. Then Hazael departed from Elisha and came to his master, who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? He answered, He told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day, Hazael took the bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face, over the king's face, till he died. And Hazael became king in his place. All right. Suddenly the words of Elisha make sense. Yeah. This illness is, would not kill the king. He would certainly recover. But the king would die. Not by the illness, but by the murder of his servant Hazael. All right. Both things were true. Now, what do we do with this? We could do a lot of bad things with this. We want to be careful. All right, so God anointed Hazael to be king. Elisha prophesied that he would be king. And yet, Hazael, in complete and utter freedom, murdered his king in treachery and sin and evil 
and is responsible for doing so. All right, so some things. God did not call Hazael to kill the king. God can will things and ordain them according to his sovereign will and not condone them. No, those who commit those things, they are responsible for doing them. And they can't say, well, God willed it. No, God does not desire sin. He does not condone sin. And he never bears the responsibility for our sin, even as he is sovereign. He is able to to hold both those things without them blending together to maintain his sovereignty and to maintain our freedom and human responsibility for sin. All right. God did not force Hazael's hand in such a way that he is not excuse, that he's not responsible for his sin. No, Hazael is responsible for his sin because he did it and he will bear the punishment. And Hazael just because he was doing God's will doesn't mean he gets to escape judgment. It doesn't mean that he is excused for it. All right. Can we hold those things? I can't explain how God holds those things. Scripture declares that, and we faithfully receive it. All right. And I think it, I think it makes sense in our hearts. When we see evil happen, when people commit great atrocities, we don't. We don't then say, well, no, they had to do it. No one feels that. No one says, well, no, that's, they don't have to bear any punishment because, well, God must have done it. Right? We know that in our heart, and Scripture reflects that. And we are true to Scripture and what is revealed. All right, so what do we know? We know that God is sovereign over all evil. He uses people as instruments for judgment and repentance and salvation. And he is also just over those who do those things. Right, this is really important because otherwise we can just say, descend into this like, well, so then no one's in control and no one bears any punishment, and God is just using all these things, and where, where is the justice? All right, there's still justice. There's still justice for those who do the evil. We think of Pharaoh. God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he might reveal his glory in the Exodus. And he also says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart and bears the punishment and is consumed by the Red Sea. We have Assyria and Babylon who are used as instruments, these evil nations, to destroy Israel, to destroy Judah, and the nations around them for their idolatry. And he holds them accountable for what they have done. Translating the New Testament, we see Judas, 
who is used to bring about the cross, who betrays his Savior, and yet what does it say? It would have been better for that man if he had not been born, for the judgment he will bear. And speaking of the cross, Peter in his sermon says, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, you with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep hold of him. The deliberate plan and foreknowledge of God. And yet, the men who did these things were wicked and are judged as a result. Okay. All right. Why do you care? Why do you care? We care because, all right, as a people, we care about justice. We care about evil being dealt with. That's what the cross is all about. It's about evil being dealt with either by the blood of Christ or by the blood of the evildoer. God will be just. And just because God is using evil towards larger plans and towards larger things and to bring about salvation doesn't mean that he throws out injustice along, or justice along the way. It doesn't mean that you, enduring suffering and enduring evil, are called to grow and to show grace and to show mercy without knowing that God will be just. All right, that's very different. We're called to be like utterly, utterly non-vengeful, to hold nothing against others, to not repay evil with evil, to show amazing grace in the face of suffering and injustice, not, not thinking that God is just going to wipe it away, but knowing that God will be just. All things will be reconciled in the end. All things will be made right. All balances will be repaid. Every debt will be called in. And it empowers us to live under the grace of Christ and to give it and to say, vengeance is yours, not vengeance is mine. God gets to say, vengeance is mine. We don't. And we don't need to, to hold it. We don't need to take it. We don't need to destroy and punish. All right. All right. We have a complicated God. We have a nuanced God. We have a God who uses all things. We have a God who is in control of all things, who is compassionate, who is powerful, who is just. And as we live in a world 
with evil all around us. We need to call all these things together. Ultimately knowing that Christ, Christ was the most subject to evil and injustice. Christ was the, who was the most sorrowful over evil. And yet he was the most gracious. He was the most compassionate. And he bore all of that evil and judgment so that we might be saved. That is the God that we need to know. That is God we worship. That is the God we live under. In an evil world, knowing that one day, that weeping will end. That sorrow will end. That evil will be destroyed by that same resurrection from the dead. He will be victorious over evil. Evil will be defeated and will be no more. We will dwell in a city where there are no more tears. There is no more darkness. That evil and injustice will be dealt with forever. And we will know peace. That is our great hope. Our resurrected Savior, who died for evil, and who resurrected to defeat it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we give you all the worship. Lord, you are in control, and we are not. You are wise and we are foolish. And Lord, we ask that we would not be wise beyond ourselves. Lord, that we would not judge you. We would not be quick to, to shake our fists. But in knowing your sovereign power, we would seek your power to save in Jesus Christ. Lord, would you help us to weep over evil even as we trust you? Would you help us to weep with those who weep would you help us to trust your justice? Lord, would you help us to, to be satisfied by the blood of Christ for those who have been found in Christ, that we would not say that the cross is enough for us, but not for them, that we would not continue to punish, that we would trust you to be just and to be right. And Father, would you give us faith to trust that Jesus will be victorious in the end? We thank you for your love and grace in Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.